Welcome to the Wealth of Knowledge podcast. I'm your host, Antonio Barbera, and today on the show we'll be discussing how to advance your career and specifically how you don't have to give up certain personality traits on your path to success. My co-host this week is Rebecca Koenig. Rebecca is the careers reporter here at U.S. News, where she covers labor policy, workplace culture, employment data, and job advice. She's previously written for the Chronicle of Higher Education and the Chronicle of Philanthropy, where she covered academic and nonprofit workers. She was named a 2018 Fellow by the National Press Foundation and won the 2015 David W. Miller Award for Young Journalists. Rebecca, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Our guest this week is Fran Hauser. Fran is a longtime media executive, startup investor, and best-selling author of The Myth of the Nice Girl. She's held senior positions at some of the world's largest digital media businesses, including People, InStyle, Entertainment Weekly, AOL, and MoviePhone. Now a startup investor, Fran was named one of Business Insider's 30 Women in Venture Capital to Watch in 2018. Fran and The Myth of the Nice Girl have been featured on a wide range of outlets, including NBC's Today Show, CNBC, People, New York Post, Fortune, Time, Fast Company, Oprah.com, L, and many more. Thank you for taking some time to talk with us. Thank you for having me. Fran, your book, uh, and I want to read the whole title to give some more context to what it's about, is called The Myth of the Nice Girl, Achieving a Career You Love Without Becoming a Person You Hate. And uh, what to me seems to be the common thread in the book is that empathy is vital to a positive workplace and for positive workplace relationships. Not just being nice, but being nice to others uh, and making your kindness purposeful, uh, buying into others because that will make them more likely to buy into you. So I have a two-part question to start, uh, and that is, how did you come up with this framing for it being okay and even beneficial for women to be nice at work? And is this book a solution for women who are already nice at work, or is it a recipe for those who don't view kindness at work as helpful to their careers? So I, I first started thinking about this topic back in 2009, so it's been nine years, it's been a long time. Um, I was at People Magazine, and I noticed that a lot of younger women who I was mentoring kept asking me the same question, which was, how can you be so nice and still be successful? And it was clearly something that they were struggling with. They were being told that they were too nice and that they needed to be tougher. Um, So when I looked around, the only books that I saw were books like Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office. Um, And I felt like I I really wanted to write the opposite of that because I know in my own career, being nice, you know, being kind, being compassionate, showing empathy, they're all things that have been so helpful to me in my career um, because they've really allowed me to develop deep relationships with people. And I think really at the end of the day to be successful in business, it's all about people and relationships. Um, So it's something that's been really helpful to me. It's also something that um, a lot of women struggle with. You know, I wrote a blog post in January of 2016 for Forbes called Nice Girls Finish First When They Ask the Right Questions, and it ended up being one of the most popular posts in this mentoring series that they did. And I started hearing from women all around the country um, who were struggling with this. And basically what I heard was, look, if I'm too nice, I'm thought of as a pushover. If I'm too tough, I'm considered a bitch. I don't know what to do. I'm kind of like stuck. Um, so that was really the moment, even though I started thinking about the topic in 2009, it was, it was when I wrote that blog post in 2016 that I felt that I really needed to write the book, 
Um, so it's been, you know, two and a half years in the making. And the second part of your question, Antonio, I really see this as more of a book for women who are authentically and genuinely nice people and they're confused about how to show up at work and how to bring that quality to work. That That's really the target audience for the book. Great. I know some people have kind of mixed feelings about the word nice. So I'm curious, uh, how do you define authentic kindness and how is it different from sucking up or people pleasing? And why is that authentic kindness important at work? Yeah. Um, so when I think of somebody who's nice at work in a, in a productive way, I think of someone who is collaborative, who is empathetic, and who has confidence that there are enough opportunities to go around. Um, so that's really, the, the last part is really about having an abundance mindset. Um, those are really the most important qualities that I think of when I, when I think of somebody who's, who's nice at work in a productive way. Um, it's very different than being a people pleaser. And I think it's such a great question, Rebecca, because, um, you know, I, often I, I will say, like, when you're nice, you're helpful. When you're a people pleaser, you're subservient. And there's a big difference between being helpful and being subservient. You know, I think especially when you're first starting out in your career, you do want to be helpful. You do want to be the person who's raising their hand and saying, I'll do that. You know, I'll stay late and get that done. Um, and that, that totally makes sense. And I, and I get that. But you don't want to do it to a point where you're saying yes to everything um, without really thinking about the why. Like, should I be doing this? Is there a strategic reason for me to be doing it? And you're really saying yes more to be a, a people pleaser. And that, that can actually um, that can actually be a form of self-sabotage if you, if you think about it, um, if you go down that, that route. So you just, you have to be very, very careful, I would say. Um, great to be helpful, but you don't want to, don't want to veer into that subservient territory. That makes sense. Um, kind of relatedly, you describe in your book how the way people perceive you at work really does matter to your success. Um, and you describe the relationship between trust and respect and how it affects men and women workers differently. And uh, it surprised me, and I think it's not necessarily the relationship people expect. Could you talk a little bit about that? In terms of the way that you're perceived? Yeah, you mentioned um, in the book that uh, trust really comes before respect in how people build an impression of you. Yeah, there's this really interesting study um, that was conducted by the Harvard Business Review where they looked at likability and competence. Um, and the likability is the, I, you know, I trust this person and the competence is the, I respect this person. And the people that are the most successful not surprisingly, are people that can do both, right? They're likable and they're competent. And those people are called lovable stars. The Harvard Business Review, I guess, coined that that phrase of uh, being a lovable star. So that's kind of what we all want to be, right? We want to be likable. We want to be competent. But when people have to choose whether they'd want to work with somebody who's likable or somebody who's competent, they would actually choose the person that's likable, over the person that's competent. And the reason for that is because they feel that they can trust this person, there's a warmth to this person, 
and they can help them get there when it comes to the skills and the competency um, versus the, the person who's got the skills and who's competent, the lack of trust can really be an issue. So they would rather go with the person who they trust and know that they can help them build the skills and, and the competency level if, you know, if they have to choose, if they're in a position of choosing. I do hear something similar from hiring managers um, that they really are looking for people who they think they're going to get along with well and who know how to communicate um, and basically be enjoyable companions in the office because they think they can teach technical skills, but it's hard to teach somebody to just be pleasant. Um, And speaking about communication, uh, what are some of the pitfalls workers, especially women, should avoid when trying to express themselves at the office? Yeah, so there's a there's a lot there's a lot here. Um, so one thing that I would talk about is speech weakeners, and I have a story in the book about how when I was at Time Inc, um, a colleague of mine called me out on apologizing all the time, and I really didn't believe her. I didn't think that, that that was something that I was doing. So I actually went into my inbox and I typed the word sorry into the search field and hundreds of emails came back. And when I started reading through them, I was horrified because I realized that I was apologizing for really trivial things. Like it took me longer than four hours to get back to someone. Like, I'm so sorry it's taken me so long to get back to you. Um, and, you know... Really, what, what I realized is that what I, my true intention and what I meant to say was thank you, not I'm sorry. You know, so it's, it's more of like replacing, replacing I'm sorry with thank you is such a great thing to do. It's such a great habit to get into. So it's thank you for your patience. You know, it's if you get invited to something and you can't go, it's thank you for the invitation, you know, or thank you for the opportunity. We just automatically default to starting the email with I'm sorry. I'm so sorry I can't make it. I'm so sorry I'm late, right? So that was something that for me, actually what I did, um, there's a Gmail plugin called Just Not Sorry that I downloaded. And it literally just, it alerts you every time you type the word sorry. And I used that for a good year. Um, and I also just, you know, I would, I, I reread my emails. Um, I still do that actually, but it's a good habit to get into to reread your emails. Um, so it's something that I really focused on breaking that habit. I even had my friend who called me out on it. I just, I asked her, I said, if you see me doing it at work, just like nudge me, just let me know that I'm doing it. And there are other speech weakeners, right? That we need to be aware of. Like when you start out a sentence, um, you know, saying, I might be wrong about this, but you know, or like the up speak or one, actually a word that I actually still struggle with is just the word just, you know, like just following up on this, just checking in. So being hyper aware of the words that you use because they, they can be speech weakeners. And then the other thing that I would say is it is really important to speak up, especially in meetings. You know, I've throughout the course of my career, I mean, I know this was something that I struggled with very early on in my career. I had, um, I have a story in the book about how I was working at Ernst and Young and Coca-Cola was a client of ours. And there was an, an older man who was a vice president at Coca-Cola. He was our client. Whenever he was in a meeting, I just shut down. I just felt so intimidated by him. And I would either say nothing at all, or I would say, that's interesting. 
that's all that I can muster to say was that's interesting. Like no matter what we were talking about. So my boss, Lou Sharetta, actually called me out on it after after one of these meetings. He said, Fran, you have to stop doing that. You know, just say anything. Just share. I know, I know that you're smart and you have a point of view and you have an opinion. It's really important that you share that so that so that you are respected. And um, I started doing it. It was really hard, but I, I remember like in the before the next meeting, I looked at the agenda and I picked one thing that I felt really confident talking about. And I was prepared, you know, to to talk. And I did. And I said something other than that's interesting. And it was okay. Like, it wasn't all that sophisticated or provocative. But I didn't die, you know. Everything was fine. I got it out. And I found that the more that I spoke up in meetings, the more comfortable I got. It's like anything, right? With practice, you just get more comfortable and you get better at it. And the guy who was so intimidating to me... Um, he ended up hiring me away from Ernst & Young, and I went to work for him at Coca-Cola. So I ended up developing a really strong relationship with him. But I don't know if he ever would have even known who I was if I hadn't spoken up because there were so many people, you know, sitting around the table. Um, and I still see this. You know, I'm in meetings, and women aren't speaking up. On the book tour, I can't tell you how many colleges I've spoken at, even even corporations, companies that I've spoken at, where when there are men in the room, every single time, hands down, it's the men that raise their hands at the end of my session to ask questions, um, even though the book is really targeted at women. And, you know, I, I remember speaking at one university where there were maybe like 20 men and like 80 women. Not one woman raised her hand, but then they all came up to ask me a question one-on-one -on -one afterwards. And when I asked the dean of the business school, like, does this usually happen? He said it happens every single time, no matter who's speaking, a woman speaking, a man speaking, the, this, this is what happens. So like, this is something that I just feel so passionately about. And like, I always say, if you're somebody who doesn't have a hard time with this, if you're confident and you're gregarious and you have no problem, you know, sharing your opinion, pay attention to people in the room that are quiet. And because oftentimes, like, they actually have so much to say, they're so smart, and they just need a little bit of help. Um, and I know, like, as a manager, when I had women like that, and men, frankly, for that matter, you know, on my team who had a hard time with it, I would give them a heads up before the meeting. And I would say, look, I'm going to ask you to talk about this topic because I know that you have a depth of expertise in it and the group needs to hear it. And this way, they, they were able to prepare, they felt more confident. So... Bring, you know, if you don't have an issue with it, see how, how you can bring others along. Um, and then my other just kind of small tip here is it's really helpful to have stock phrases to help you insert yourself into a conversation. Even something as simple as following on that, building on that. I love that perspective and, you know, whatever that stock phrase is for you because it just, it'll get you to start talking um, and it also gives you time to think about what you want to say, you know, while you're saying that that phrase. Um, so that's something that I've I've found to be really helpful over the years. Uh, I mean, a speech weakener that comes to mind for me immediately also is this new sort of this new discussion on using a period versus an exclamation point. And if you're not using exclamation points, the women are a lot of time as perceived to be speaking in a sort of a negative tone. If they're using periods, it makes them seem like they're curt or something like that. Uh, so you, you see a lot of these all over the place. And then another thing is, is body language, I think is another important aspect of this too. 
I, I've had discussions before about how there are conference rooms and there's empty chairs at the table. I mean, metaphorically and literally empty chairs at the table. And yet people will walk into this room and they won't sit at the table. They will sit sort of behind against the windows or against the wall. Uh, and that they're not in the meeting anymore. They're not in the room. They're not present. Uh, so I think body language is another very important aspect of this as well. I agree. It's it's actually the, the research that, that I looked at for the book, um, the, the stat is actually staggering. It's like 93% of the effectiveness of your communication is nonverbal. 93%. So it's everything other than the words that you use. You know, it's your posture, it's your eye contact, it's um, it's the way that you show up. It's the, you know, it's it's what you said. I mean, the fact that you're not even sitting at the, at the table or like when I do a talk and automatically the the back of, you know, the chairs in the back get filled first and there's like nobody sitting in the front, right? That's still, that still happens. Sometimes I also feel like um, if I'm sitting at a table and I'm having a hard time um, inserting myself into the conversation, I'll just stand. There's so much power in standing because it really does force everybody to look at you and it gives you the floor, literally gives you the floor, you know? So that's another technique that I've used in the past um, that's that's been really, really helpful. You know, you know how sometimes you're in a meeting and like somebody just, they have the floor and they're not giving it up. They're just talking and talking and talking and talking. So sometimes you, you do, you have to do something that's nonverbal. That's, you know, standing is a, is a great, great way to, to, to go at it. One communication situation that many women have especially a uh, hard time with is how to disagree effectively at work, especially if the person they would like to disagree with is uh, someone at a higher level than they are. So I wonder if you have any tips specific to that situation, how to um, kindly but effectively voice dissent. So the one thing I'll say, and this goes back actually to um, how Antonio, you know, started this discussion, um, you know, by, by speaking about empathy. And I, I really, truly believe that in every human interaction that you're in, whether you're disagreeing with someone, you're negotiating, you're trying to influence someone to do something, you're giving tough feedback, if you start with empathy, you'll have a much better chance of having a successful outcome and a, and a productive conversation. So if you go into that conversation where you're disagreeing with somebody and you really try to put yourself in their shoes, in their head and think about like, okay, what, so what, why are they like, why are they coming to this conclusion or to this point of view and asking them questions to really understand um, their position because oftentimes what happens is when you go into these conversations you're so focused on what's in your head you're so focused on why you know what you're thinking it's the right way to think about this and I, I'm right or here are the three things that I need to get out of this conversation and I can't leave without getting these three things out of the conversation because I only have 30 minutes um, but instead if you just if you just pause and ask questions to understand the person's position better and really like actively, actively listen. And also ask questions around the underlying assumptions and data that they use to come up with their position. That's also really helpful because then it gives you something concrete 
um, that that you can that you can talk about, so that you're. It's not emotional, you know. It's, it doesn't get emotional. It's more about, oh, I see. You you know you were you were thinking about this one specific piece and how it might affect it, and then and then you can share your thoughts and your opinion on that one specific piece. So, I think that's literally the best advice that I could give, no matter what human interaction you're having. Like I said before, disagreeing, negotiating, influencing, giving tough feedback. Start from a place of empathy and you know, really, um, ask a lot of questions, you know, show, demonstrate active, active listening that will also, um, allow the other person to trust you because they'll feel like, Oh wow, this person really cares about how I'm thinking about this, you know? So I I think that's the number one piece of advice that I, that I would give actually, if you walk away with nothing else from this conversation, but that it's a good one, it works. I think there's often a belief in the workplace and in life, quite frankly, that some people have confidence and others don't, and there's nothing that can be done about it. You're either born with confidence or you aren't. But I really like how in the book you note, true confidence comes from solid evidence of your previous successes, not ego. That's such a great, simple explanation. How can workers build confidence in their decision-making abilities? Yeah, so that was actually when we got to... um to that part of the book. I'm so glad you liked that sentence, Antonio, because it was a really important sentence. Like when we, when we wrote that, Jody Lipper was my writing partner on the book. Um, and we thought a lot about this. We thought a lot about the difference between confidence and, and ego. And I think we came up with this term evidence-based confidence. I haven't seen it any place else. I, I, I'm not sure, but it really comes from my own experiences. And, um, knowing like those moments where I wasn't feeling confident and I was feeling a little bit of imposter syndrome. Like there's a story I share in the book where when I was at Time Inc, we had a, uh, we had a lot of new CEOs. We had like five new CEOs over the course of three years. And, um, we had this one new CEO who wanted to pull together a meeting for the top 300 managers at the company. And he asked me and four other people to speak. And I was really panicking about this because I hadn't built a relationship with a CEO yet. And this was really going to be the first time that he was going to see me in action. And I was going to be speaking in front of the top 300 managers of the company. And so I was feeling really nervous. And I called my, my coach, MJ Ryan, who um, I've worked with for years, told her how I was feeling. And she said to me, she said, you know, Fran, I want you to visualize a talk that you've done previously that went really well. And I want you to think about the process that you used to prepare for it and then picture yourself in the moment giving the talk how did everybody look like the you know the looks on their faces after the talk when they came up to you and said what a great job you did and when i visualized it that's what gave me that gave me evidence based confidence because i felt like okay i've done this before and i've done it well i can do this again you know and i knew exactly the process that i used i i believe in process i believe in like if you have a process that works for you, like my, for example, I know that um, when I look at really good decisions that I've made in my life, the process that I've used is I've, I've taken in data and input, but then I go with my gut and that process works for me. It could be different for you. You know, it might be more head-based, heart-based, but just trusting yourself and thinking back on your life and your career and thinking back on those moments where you were successful and knowing that, okay, I, I can do this. I've done this before. I can do this again. Um, so 
I also encourage, like, I love, I love writing things down. Um, and I, sometimes if I'm feeling nervous, if I'm going into a situation or a meeting where I don't quite feel as confident as I should, as I should, I'll just jot down like three or four things that I've done like recently or over the last six months that have made a big impact or that have created a lot of value for, you know, the company that I'm working at or a client or a partner and actually seeing it in writing, it makes such a big difference as opposed to just like, so I visualize, but then I'll also write it. I'll write it down. Uh, In telling your story in the book, uh, you note that networking has helped you a lot to find different opportunities both inside of companies and at other organizations that interested you. Why is it important uh, for workers and maybe women especially to network inside of their companies and outside of their companies and even perhaps outside of their fields uh, to think about possibilities that have never occurred to them before? Well, I know I would not have been able to pivot from media into investing, um, which I just, I did five years ago, if I didn't have that network supporting me. Um, Too often I see people, you know, both women and and men, um, sitting down in front of the computer and doing really, really great work for the company and sitting in all these internal meetings and, you know, working together to inbox zero and like all, all this stuff that's, in, you know, it's, a, it's all good. It's all important. Um, but what I don't see is an intentional thinking around, I need to invest in myself. I need to invest in my community because it's such an, it's such an asset and it's so important, you know, especially if you do want to make a move, if you want to switch from like one industry to, to another, or even just within the company, you know, if you're thinking about maybe working in a different department or getting promoted, whatever it is, having people that are going to have your back, that are going to champion you, that are going to sponsor you, it's everything, you know, and, and I'll, I'll never forget, um, Pat Philly Crucial was the number two at Time Warner. And she said to me years ago that she networks, she does at least two networking meetings every single day. And I remember thinking like, how, how could she possibly have the time to do that? Right? Like we are all so busy and so overwhelmed. So I just started small and just said, you know, once a week, I'm just going to say one hour every week. Um, I am going to, I'm going to have a coffee with someone or I'm going to go for a walk. And LinkedIn is amazing because you can, you know, you can make your target list, right? Of like, here are the people that I'd love to meet. Here are the mutual connections. So, you know, you get a warm introduction to those people. Um, but also I would say be intentional about what are you trying to do? Like if you love where you're working and you see yourself progressing and accelerating with, within, within your company, then it's really important that you have some mentors and that you have a deep network with people that are powerful, you know, at, at your company. Um, if you feel like I like what I'm doing, but I think in a couple of years, I kind of, I'm going to want to do something different, which is where I was when I was in media, you know, I looked up and I'm like, Oh my God, everybody in my network is a media person. So I, I felt like I needed to branch out into technology because media was being disrupted, you know, by technology. So technology and not, and nonprofit, which was something I was really interested in. So I really focused on, on those two areas. So being really intentional about why not just like networking for the sake of networking, but, but the why is important. Um, 
getting the warm introduction is important. Seeing it as something that's mutually beneficial is really important. I had a young woman reach out to me on LinkedIn and I just thought she was brilliant because she, it was cold. We had no mutual connections. Um, and she said, you know, I'd love to get on your calendar and learn a little bit more about your career path. Um, and also I took some time to look at your portfolio and I noticed that you have two companies that are really struggling with their social media presence. And I have some ideas for you that I'd like to share. So, um, it, for me, of course I took that meeting, right? Because it wasn't just about like her picking my brain. It was, she, she was also, she took the time to do the research and she wanted to be helpful to me. So thinking about it in terms of mutually beneficial is also really, really important. So similar to that then from networking to mentoring, you write, it's, I mean, very similar to what you just described. A mentor is someone who also gains from the relationship, not someone who only gives. But I think a lot of lower level employees wonder what they could possibly offer to a mentor. And since they can't come up with anything, they avoid contacting that person at all so as not to waste their time. So what suggestions do you have for that person? What do they not even know that they can offer to a high-level executive? Mm -hmm. So I'll give you just a a personal story of um, a young woman that I was mentoring, Soraya Darabi. And I met Soraya when I was at Time Inc., and she was the first social media person at the New York Times. She was young. I mean, she's probably in her mid-20s. And she was thinking about starting a business. And we got to know each other. And I'll, and I'll never forget this. She said to me, she said, Fran, you know, I want to start a business. I have all of these female friends who would also love to start businesses in New York. But when they look up, there are no female mentors. There's, there's nobody that can really be helpful to them. And you can be that person. And she said this to me when I was at Time Inc. And it was that moment with her that made me realize, like, wow, like, I really like meeting with startups, meeting with founders. What if I went all in into like angel investing and advising? It'd give me a lot of flexibility. I had two little boys, you know, at the time they were three years old and 18 months old. Um, And she's the one, like she, again, she was in her mid twenties and she made that statement. She saw an opportunity for me that I didn't see for myself. And And a lot of that was because she was plugged into a network and into a culture that I wasn't. So, right, she, she was very involved in the New York City tech scene and community. So she was able to see this opportunity that I couldn't see from my corner office at, you know, sitting across from Radio City Music Hall, right, in Midtown. Um, so just, you know, if you, there, there is so much. Like, I, we actually, at Time Inc., we, we had reverse mentoring, um, especially for some of our executives who were more senior executives and weren't as... Um, up to speed on social media and technology. We had some of the younger people um, on the team who would reverse reverse mentor and like actually show the executive like this is how I use Twitter and this is how, you know, this is how I use Facebook. And um, there's, there's so much. Even like you might see an article that you think I might find interesting, like send it to me, you know? It's, th- there's, oh my gosh, so much, so much to offer. The whole, if I think about my career, like, I literally would, I don't think that I would have, I would have made this pivot into investing if it wasn't for that conversation that I had with Soraya. And I was her mentor. If you ask her, I'm her mentor. So I'm going to pivot now a little bit 
Uh, Rebecca, here at U.S. News, we focused a lot of coverage on millennial workers, uh, and I know you've done a lot of uh, data research to better understand what makes them tick. What have they demonstrated as most important to them in their careers? So millennials um, now make up the largest segment of the American workforce, um, and I hear all the time from managers that they've observed how millennials really prize flexibility. Um, in, in, at U.S. News, we did a survey uh, in 2017 asking millennials about their work priorities, and they identified salary as the top one, perhaps not surprisingly, um, but good work-life balance and low stress were their second and third priorities. Um, and millennials have kind of come of age as professionals in an era where we're paying more attention to lack of paid sick and family leave and how that burdens young families, especially women who tend to be the primary caregivers for kids or for older relatives. Uh, so work-life balance is a big one for millennials. And um, it's something that Fran writes about in her book, um, basically about how to set you know, healthy boundaries for yourself at work. And Fran, I'm interested in your advice for some lower level workers, millennials perhaps, um, who want to create reasonable work-life boundaries and maybe don't know how to do it, especially as they're not too far into their careers. So one thing I, I always suggest is to be really clear, and this probably involves um, a conversation with your manager, but to be really clear on what success looks like for you um, six months down the road, a, a year down the road, so that your time is being well spent. You know, I, I always say like you should have two or three kind of big, you know, initiatives, rocks, whatever you want to call them that are really going to move the needle for the company. And that's where you should be focusing your time. Um, and when stuff comes up that's outside of, of those things, that's where you really have to have the confidence to say no and to say no in a, in, in a, in a kind way. Again, th you know, thank you for the opportunity. I'm currently heads down, you know, working on X, Y, Z, um, you know, please think about me in the future, you know, so it's, it's, um, I can't like stress enough. I know in my own career, what, when I felt the most stressed from a work-life balance perspective, it was when I came back from maternity, my first maternity leave. And the reason why I was so stressed is because up until that point, I was all about my job and my career and I loved it. I would stay till midnight, two o'clock in the morning. I loved the people that I worked with, the brands that I worked on. Um, so I had no problem. You know, I really didn't, I truthfully, I didn't have very many boundaries. But as soon as I had a family, like I wanted to get home and you have to make some really tough decisions. Like, for example, I became very focused on substance over form. And what I mean by that is like previously, I would spend so much time like putting together a beautiful PowerPoint deck to take my boss through an idea or an opportunity. And I just stopped doing that. Like instead, I would just go in and have a conversation and if it was if she liked the direction, then I would go deeper and do do more work. But I wasn't going to spend three weeks putting a PowerPoint deck together just to you know. So like it, th those are sort of the decisions that you have to. So it starts with like, what does success look like for me? What are the two or three things that I really need to focus on where I can add a lot of value to the company, really move the needle, 
Um, and then being confident, having the confidence and sometimes getting the air cover from your manager if you need it, um, you know, to, to say no. And I actually apply this to every part of my life. I apply it to self-care. I apply it to family. I apply it to the nonprofit work that I do. Like in each one of those areas, I'm always thinking about what are the two or three things, you know, what are the two or three key priorities and, and really set boundaries around those things and set boundaries around your time and energy because they're your most precious resources. So I want to take some time here to discuss salary negotiations, which you also write about a lot in your book. I think one of the most common, uh, not excuses, but common reasonings that come up with the problem of salary negotiation is that women don't negotiate as much as men or as well as men. So we then say, well, we need to teach, we should teach women to negotiate uh, more often and be stronger and be better at it. And then there's an issue there as well where women negotiating are perceived differently than men negotiating, where a man and a woman may say the same thing in a meeting negotiating salary and one is viewed negatively and one is viewed positively. So what's the solution with women or for women with these contrasting challenges of, of needing to negotiate more while also running into the potential where people may perceive them as being overly aggressive or overly demanding. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very complicated. And there are a few things that I would say. So one, one thing that I find really interesting is that women tend to negotiate more effectively if they're negotiating on behalf of someone else. So if, you know, Rebecca, if you were negotiating on behalf of your best friend, you could easily see the value that she creates for her company and you love her so much that you are going to go to bat for her. And I always say like channel that towards yourself, you know, like be able to stand outside of yourself and objectively evaluate all of the great work that you do and love yourself enough that, that you are going to ask and by the way, like if you don't ask, the answer is always no. The answer is always no. And you can do it in a way that shows that, you know, you love the company. You can go into it with a really positive attitude, um, really understanding, like, what does the company stand to lose by not retaining you? That's the empathy part, by the way. Like, what does the company stand to lose by not retaining you? Having a really good understanding of that. And I think doing your homework and understanding what your market rate is, one of the things I talk about a lot is like make executive recruiters your best friend. You know, like you should be taking a recruiter out for coffee at least a couple times a year because they know exactly what your market rate is. They're hiring for, for you know, similar positions to yours all the time. Um, so I know that as a manager, when I had somebody on my team, I had this woman on my team once come to me and say, um, look, I've done a little bit of research. Here's what I found. Peers at other media companies are making this much. I'm hearing this from recruiters. Like, that's a hard thing for me to argue with. You know, when like you've done all this research, you're, you're bringing me the data. You're doing it in a really positive way. Like she started out by saying, like, I just I love this company and I love working with you. And, you know, I and I want to work here for a really, really long time. I also want to make sure that I'm not being undervalued because I want to do my best work for the company. So the, I, I think there, there, there's a way to do it. I'm telling you, like, I've had four or five women over the last couple of months 
say they, they've used the advice in the book and they've gotten raises. One woman got a 30% increase and she's now at market. Um, so she was 30% below market. Um, so the other thing I say is don't wait until the annual performance review. Have the conversation three or six months ahead of the performance review so that it's in your manager's head that you're expecting it if they do say no. Um, it's, you know, if you've just had a big win, that's a great time to ask. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm just like all for it because the worst thing, really the worst thing that can happen is that you get a no. And I want to talk about now the concept of investing in yourself, which again, you cover at some length in your book. We, we talked about improving yourself through networking. What are some other crucial ways workers should always seek to better themselves professionally, even out, maybe outside of their job even? I, uh, so I really believe that the more well-rounded you are, um, the, the more you have to offer to the people in your world, to, to your, you know, to the company that you work for. I mean, so I just, I really, I love the idea of being curious and being open and, um, you know, the whole idea of like this, the side hustle is something that's really intriguing to me because when I was at Time, I started investing and advising as a, as a side hustle. It was something that I was doing on the side that I ended up really loving. And, you know, with Soraya's advice, I ended up doing full time. Um, so being open to like working on other things, you know, like maybe there's a community service project or maybe there's a nonprofit board. Um, you know, all of those things are, are really great. But, but truthfully, if I had to say, like, if you only have time, if you have like one hour a week, it's about building out your network for sure. Hands down that, that is what I would be focusing on in terms of, in terms of investing in yourself. Um, because each person that you meet, then, you know, it's a web and then they'll, they'll introduce you to someone else and you, you just keep, you just keep growing your community and then really focusing on now you have this community. It's like nurturing those relationship, right. And, and going deeper with those people. So that is definitely the, the, my, my top piece of advice, just based on my own experience and based on other leaders that I've seen who have been really successful. So we're going to finish up here and I have one more question for both of you. Uh, I, I tend to view change when it comes to the workplace in three categories. There's what needs to be done over time at a national, federal level with legal changes. There's a category of change involving specific industries or specific companies. What general policies do they need to address in the workplace? And then there's finally the individual level and what they can do in their day-to-day -day at work. What are some things someone can try out tomorrow at their job to put themselves on a path to career growth, things that maybe not nearly enough workers are doing right now. One or two things that are extremely important that you could do tomorrow and get on that path. Rebecca, why don't you go first? Uh, well, based on our conversation today and, and reporting I've done, I would say it's really important to make a priority list and stick with that. Um, ask your boss or your teammates for some feedback. Don't wait until the end of the year to kind of hear that so you can adapt on the go. Um, express your opinion in a meeting that you have if that's not something you're comfortable doing. Um, and then invite somebody new to coffee or lunch, someone whose work really intrigues you who maybe you don't know as well as you should. Oh gosh, I love all of those. Um, I would add I would add a very specific, uh, you know, tangible thing. Go on LinkedIn and make a list. Make, make a list of some people that you'd love to meet, that you're, you know, you're really curious to meet. Um, 
and put together a, a an action plan on how you're going to get to those people. Um, the other thing that I'll say is along with your priorities, like once you write out your priorities, look at your calendar and your to-do list and look for alignment between your priorities and where you're actually spending your time, which is your calendar and your to-do list. And if they're not aligned, think about whether you need to recalibrate or um, you know, you, you might have to think about the way that you're spending time differently. Um, you know, if you look at your calendar and you see all these recurring meetings that are not productive, you know, maybe that's something that you should stop being, you know, being a part of or, but so I, I think that's a really important thing along with your priorities is, is look at where you're spending your time. Is there alignment? Fran, I want to thank you for coming on today and sharing your expertise. Where can our listeners find you on social media if they want to learn more about your knowledge and wisdom and furthering their careers? Yeah. So Instagram and Twitter, uh, my handle is Fran underscore Hauser, and they can also go to FranHauser.com. Great. Thank you. Fran's book is called The Myth of the Nice Girl, Achieving a Career You Love Without Becoming a Person You Hate, and it is available on Amazon, where it was named a Best Business Book of 2018. Rebecca, I want to thank you for coming on as well. Uh, where can our listeners find you on social media to read some, uh, some of your career stories coming out? On Twitter, my handle is Becky underscore Koenig. And of course, you can always read my work uh, on Twitter at the at US News Money handle. Great. And I look forward to having you on for our next careers topics. And uh, thank you to our listeners as well. For more careers-related advice, please go to money.usnews.com to read up on how to find a great job, how to nail the interview process, how to negotiate your salary, and much more. And please like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast so that we can help get more careers-related advice out to as many people as we can. As always, thanks for listening to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm Antonio Barbera. See you next week.